You are listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church. All right, here we go to the book of Genesis chapter 20. And uh, before we uh, get into this text, um, just wanted to remark uh, briefly, um, it was in my heart yesterday as I was thinking of coming and standing in front of you, all the things that are happening in, uh, in our country right now and, and really uh, have been happening for a few years now as far as racial tension and things like that. And we've spoken on these things before and, and reiterated, I think, several times uh, the Christian perspective. Uh, but there are times when it's particularly important to remind each other of who we are in Christ and how that shapes our view of each other. And, and so right now, it's an important point to make, to remind each other that um, when we look at another human being, we see two things. We see a person who is made in the image of God and a person who is loved by God. And if we fail to see a human being and the way that God sees them as made in his image and therefore having honor and having a degree of glory above the rest of creation that God created human beings for a special purpose and has, has given us that, uh, that dominion in the world to bear his image and to reflect his glory as human beings, if we fail to see that and if we fail to realize and join in in the way that God loves human beings, then, then we have an unchristian perspective. And so here's what I would say to you. I, I don't believe that anybody in here is about to uh, drive out to Charlottesville and join in a white supremacist rally. But here's what could happen. The church could be eerily silent in times like this and not proclaim God's love and a human being's honor as being made in the image of God. Uh, and it would be a missed opportunity at the least. And so let's, let's be faithful to continue proclaiming God's truth, um, God's love for people all made equally to bear his image. Uh, it's an act of God's sovereignty and God's goodness that we look and think differently and live differently than each other. It's an enriching thing that God has designed and not something that we should divide on. In fact, it's an even more profound thing for a Christian to realize this because as Ephesians 2 says, Christ, when he died on the cross, tore down a dividing wall of hostility that men had built up between each other and he created one kind of man out of two kinds of men people who trust Christ. And then as Peter says, we are a holy nation, a royal priesthood, a chosen race. Christians should know better than anyone that we are all equal and we are all united. And so let's live that way and think that way and talk that way. Be heralds of God's truth and love. All right, so Genesis chapter 20. We are, Lord willing, going to cover the entire chapter. Uh, it's not long, and, uh, and it really just covers, I think, one primary theme, and that's what we're going to focus on this morning. So just as we always do, I'll read this 
chapter out loud, and then uh, we'll stop and pray for some help. Genesis chapter 20. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And he journeyed in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. And Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Now Abimelech had not approached her. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she is my sister? And she herself said, he is my brother? In the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands, I have done this. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it is I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. Now then, Return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things, and the men were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, What have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, What did you see that you did this thing? Abraham said, I did it because I thought, There's no fear of God at all in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Besides, she is indeed my sister, the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do to me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah, he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, and also healed his wife and female slaves, so that they bore children. For the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for being here with us. Your presence is such a gift, such a treasure, so enlivening and enlightening. And thank you for what you put on Ben's heart to say to us this morning, to, to seek you for breaking out of routine and to orient our minds and our hearts on you, to exalt you to know you, to worship you. Lord, please don't let that word be wasted on us this morning. Please don't let this word be wasted on us this morning. But let it go forward and produce fruit. Please exalt yourself. 
in us, through us, with us. Change us, Lord, to be more like you, to demonstrate and live out your character, your will, your gospel. Holy Spirit, we're turning to you and trusting you to do this work because we know that it is yours to do and not our own. So we come empty-handed and feeble but prayerful and I hope, Lord, faithful. We trust you only to do a great work in us this morning. So we ask for it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, when you uh, read this text, if you've been with us for the last few months, you might be thinking, here we go again, right? With Abraham coming to a new place, and then this whole little gimmick that he's got with his wife to uh, fool the people, and it backfires and happens all over again, and he regrets it, wishes that it hadn't happened. Abraham defaults again to his own devices. And it's a bit of a haunting thing here with Abraham. And, and I know if you've never really studied the life of Abraham before, then this may be a new experience for you. You've maybe only uh, read about Abraham where he's referenced in the New Testament and he's Father Abraham, as the song aptly says. He's Father Abraham, and we all look to him to the beginnings of a plan of God to establish a people in this world for himself that are unique and that are made for his glory to demonstrate his glory in the world. And you've always thought of Abraham in that way, perhaps. And now as we journey through Abraham's life, we're seeing a different side of him that keeps creeping up. This side of Abraham that is weak, that's fearful, that is not altogether faithful. And, and, you know, there's an understandable thing here. Let's be real. Let's not just, I don't really ever mean to come at you super preachy. Uh, we want to be real and just be human beings in a room together who are studying God's word. And wherever we find ourselves like, uh, I mean, I know it was wrong, but I understand. I have sympathy I think we can feel that way towards Abraham. Imagine journeying in a foreign land full of foreign people who are godless and who have the regular tradition of just taking wives, the king of whatever. And don't think of a kingdom here as even necessarily thousands of people, much less millions of people. These are small kind of city-states, city kingdoms throughout these territories. And the king of that place would just see a beautiful woman and say, She's gonna, is she someone's wife yet? No, okay, she'll be my wife. And he'll take for himself maybe hundreds of wives to join this harem, and he'll just get to them when he has the chance, as he pleases. You can imagine as Abraham is traveling through these places, that he would be tempted to find some way of not being killed so that Sarah could be someone else's wife. And the technicality that we discover here from Abraham that she actually is his half-sister, it gave him some kind of avenue where I can not exactly lie, but I can kind of subvert 
the whole truth and I can preserve my life that way. Of course, the, the really sinister part of the plan is, is it doesn't really at all protect Sarah, does it? Everywhere they go, she's being taken as someone else's wife and she's like, he's my brother. All right, just take me. Where am I supposed to go? This, this in no way is, is meant to protect Sarah. It's only meant, as he says, this you must do in every place we go. You must say to them, he is my brother. Do this kindness to me. How is that kind to her? So even if it's an understandable plan to preserve his life, it's not a great one. It's obviously not fault-proof, and it's not really loving towards his wife. So we have to find ourselves, even if we're understanding towards him, seeing him fail again. We see him fail again. This is now the third time that he has enacted this plan. So again, we want to say, and we've been saying this a lot as we journey through Genesis, that the Bible is incredibly honest with us, isn't it? Abraham is supposed to be one of the great heroes of our faith. He's referred to in the New Testament as someone to look back to as an example of how to trust God and follow God. And he is that. And yet he's also very flawed. So he's a relatable hero. The Bible's very honest. So it's important that we come to the Bible honestly ourselves. God's not trying to hide flaws and failures of those who've gone before us, so then he's setting a standard that we are not meant to hide our flaws and failures. We come to God in the light. So rather by showing us their flaws and his faithfulness to them, God is demonstrating his mercy to those who have faith in him. Not that everyone that he calls is meant to be perfect in this life, We're supposed to seek it and strive for it to live righteously, but the expectation is not that the most faithful among us is going to be actually perfect. Instead, what God is demonstrating by being honest with us about Abraham is that he is a merciful God to those that he's justified through their faith. So I want to point something out. I want to remind you of some things that the Bible says about Abraham. Like I said, this is now the third time that we've come across this scenario with Abraham. Each time it blows up in his face, it nearly ends in disaster with Sarah being taken into the home of a foreign king to be one of his wives. And then every single time God intervenes, Abraham is rebuked. He's sent packing out of the town. None of it looks good on him. And yet... Romans 4.3, Galatians 3.6, James 2.23, all quote Genesis 15.6 to remind us Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is how the Bible remembers Abraham. That's not insignificant. That as we get here into this kind of gut-level journey with Abraham. We see all of his flaws and failures and, and, the, and his sins. But how does God remember him in history? Thousands of years moving forward, what does God point to in Abraham's life? His faith points to his faith. God doesn't even attempt to point to his perfection, his excellence, 
His steadfastness, he points to his faith. And that by his faith, he was justified and counted righteous before God. Because this is how God saves men and women. By grace through faith. So Romans, Galatians, James speak about Abraham not as a scoundrel, as a coward, as a poor husband. Why? Because those who believe God are not defined by their sins. They're defined by God's righteousness given to them as a gift. I'm pointing that out again because we tend to very easily forget that dynamic in the kingdom of God. And and we tend to put a pressure on ourselves that the way God views us and how he'll remember us is by how well we did. This is how we tend to think of ourselves. And this is the worldly, natural way of thinking. How well did you do? Well, that's how well you'll be remembered. But in God's kingdom, we're remembered by whether or not we were covered by the blood of Christ, making us righteous in God's sight. That it was a gift that we could not earn and did not earn. It was credited to us through faith. So how does this apply to us? I realize that really here we're just in the first couple of verses still. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he, journeyed, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said of Sarah, his wife, she is my sister, and Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. Two verses, what do we do with it? If we remember Abraham, the way we're taught to remember Abraham is a man of faith, a man loved by God, a man chosen by God, a man who is flawed and failing, and yet God remains persistently for him, for his good, and for the sake of God's name. If we remember Abraham in this way, what does it mean for us in these first two verses? There is a redundancy here in Abraham's sin, right? A repetitiousness, which is fun to say. There's something redundant about the way Abraham fails. That is also significant. As human beings, there are particular ways that we're bent to fail in our flesh, in our natural selves. So you take two people, and apart from the grace of God, will they both always sin in the same exact ways? No. Some people, by God's grace, just his general grace to humanity, are not as bad as they could be like this or like that, and they are as bad as they could be like this or like that, and everything in between. We're very diverse in our sinfulness. We tend to fail in certain ways. This was something that plagued Abraham and his life. That when he journeyed into a new place, when he's surrounded by unfamiliarity, he tended to become fearful and resort to his own devices to protect himself rather than trusting in God. This is how he tended to fail. He was bent towards fear and self-preservation and even being deceptive as an act of self-preservation. So how does this 
apply to us? Well, here's the question. What is the redundant, embarrassing, frustrating sin in your life that you cannot seem to shake? Are you being honest with yourself when you hear that question? When it, when it strides out from my vocal cords and hits the air and travels into your ears, and as you hear it, the question sinks down into your heart and you're confronted with the reality that you are sinful in some redundant ways and that that is a sickness and a failure on your part to trust God some aspect of his character, some aspect of his nature, his sovereignty. What is that thing and are you willing to face it? I want to encourage you here at the outset, before we get any deeper into this text, before I teach you theologically how to answer that question, you have to learn the discipline of asking it genuinely of yourself. The hard work of self-examination. How am I particularly bent towards rebellion against God? Towards sin? Maybe it's like Abraham's, trying to protect yourself for some perceived threat rather than trusting God in that moment. Whatever the case is, whatever that sin is, and I pray that the Holy Spirit is working in you to be realistic with yourself, to be honest, and to see the truth of how you're failing. I, I know that as I journeyed through this, I had to be confronted with my own sinfulness and the very frustrating redundancy of it. Whatever the case is, here's what you need to leave this room knowing. God is sovereign over your sin. So as you sat there kind of ruminating and stewing in this awareness of your sin, and I hate thinking about this, but I know sometimes I have to, and as you sit there and you feel the frustration of it and the embarrassment of it, and it grieves you, let me declare over that grief, which is good grief, let it be godly. Let me, let me encourage you to feel that grief and believe this truth that God is sovereign over your sin. And the rest of this text is going to help me explain that to you. As much as your spirit wants to repent and be done with that sin in your life, you feel that it is haunting you. And, and there are probably, again, if we're being honest with each other, we would all probably have to confess that there have been points when we felt defeated by it. Are you with me? That you felt that you may never be done with it. You probably, in your prayers about it, confessed that you were tired of feeling the guilt of it, 
that you were lacking the power and asking God for some kind of power to overcome it, and even possibly asking God why he won't give you the power? Some confusing, honest questions. I would say this is definitely the case, no matter what kind of sin it is, no matter what your questions have been about it. I know that I can say this confidently. One of the reasons you haven't repented of that sin is because you haven't learned to hate it. You haven't learned to hate it. There's still something about it that is attractive to you, that is useful to you, that is comforting to you. Maybe you hope to reap some kind of secular benefit from it. Here's what I mean. You have found that you can somehow, in your own heart, compartmentalize that sin and the enjoyment of it, compartmentalize it to some part of your life that you've convinced yourself really doesn't have anything to do with God or your faith in Him. It's just a separate issue. And it's not hurting me or hurting anybody. And I'm not really even sure that it's sin, but in your heart, you know that the Spirit has convicted you that it is. Or maybe you know that it is utterly sinful, but you're presuming on the grace of God. You know that you believe in Jesus and you know that this is sin. And so you say, well, I know that because of my belief in Jesus, God will forgive me of this sin. Maybe it's a sin like Abraham's, maybe not. But again, the truth that I hope you leave with this morning is that God is sovereign over the sin, over your struggle, over your questions, and even over the suffering that the sin causes. He sees it. He understands it. He knows what part of your heart it comes from when the desire was birthed, when your faith failed, and when you made up your mind to give in, God knows all of these things with a more heightened awareness than you have. He understands these moments, these Genesis 20 verses 1 and 2 moments. He understands them more deeply than Abraham did or than we do. Listen to this. He knows how many times it will happen before genuine repentance is reached. He knows exactly what he will do to bring you to that moment of genuine repentance by teaching your soul that he's of more value than that sin. He knows the things you don't know and love about him enough to make you hate that sin. He knows how he will use the consequences of your sin to sanctify you. He knows how he will use the consequences of your sin to sanctify you. How he'll use the consequences of your sin to sanctify others. Listen to this. He has the power to stop you. Have you ever thought of that? Has the thought ever bothered you? comforted you. He has the power to stop you. He has the power to give you over to it. Terrifying. He has the power to kill you because of it and the authority and the right. 
Your sin is not evidence either of your freedom from God's rule or God's inability to rule your life as king. Your sin is merely evidence of your great need for a mercifully sovereign God. Not a God who is only sovereign, but who in his sovereignty is merciful to sinners. And because he's made a covenant with you by the blood of Christ, he will not fail to count you as righteous through your faith in Christ, even when your sin betrays your faith. He is sovereign over your sin. He is as devoted to you as he was to Abraham. It's hard for us to categorize ourselves with these biblical figures, isn't it? It seems kind of arrogant it's, and, and we are warned rightly to not put ourselves in the place of biblical figures who maybe have done something great or who have been commended by God. It's very important for us to not commend ourselves, but only to be commended by God. And yet, we can absolutely relate to many biblical figures in many ways and being counted righteous because of our faith is one of those ways. God's devotion to us is one of those ways. He is as devoted to you, Christian, as he was to Abraham. Not because of your own worthiness or righteousness, but because of his love for you. Because of his love for you. This is the basis of his devotion Love. So, we have to ask ourselves another question then. What kind of expectation should we have for ourselves as repeat offenders who believe in Jesus? Abraham was a man who was counted righteous because of his belief in God, and he was a person who sinned, a repeat offender. We are all repeat offenders who believe in Jesus. So what is the set of expectations we have to have for ourselves as we live this life? There are two temptations here before I establish expectations, right biblical expectations that I hope will comfort you. Here are the two temptations. The first thing is to become cold to the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his convicting work. Cold to the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his convicting work. You have realized one part of the story that you are incapable of ceasing to offend God in this particular way. You've realized your incapability. But you've become defeated in your soul. And so the Spirit coming and reminding you of the sinfulness of that thing is intolerable to you because you feel that what he's pointing out is something you are helpless to overcome. Why would you tell me about this thing if it's impossible for me to overcome it? In your mind, it could seem cruel because you feel helpless and the Spirit's work is intolerable for you. Here's what I mean by intolerable. You cannot bear to think of it. You cannot bear to think of it. And let me tell you what this is called. The searing of a conscience. The searing of a conscience. You know what searing is? When you go to cook a steak 
what do you do? You turn the heat up really high first, right? And you slap the meat on there and you leave it to sear the steak and then you flip it over and you sear the other side and then you turn the heat down so that there's a slow cook on the inside while the outside keeps everything in. There's a protective barrier built by that searing. When your conscience, when your heart is seared and you become cold to the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, you are resisting sanctification. And sanctification is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It couldn't be more clear from the, from the scriptures. You're abandoning and rebelling against God's will. So I plead with you, if you have been intolerant of the Spirit's convicting work in your heart because you're so defeated about some sin in your life and you can't bear to think of it anymore, you just want to pretend that it's not real, that the sin isn't sin or that you're not doing it, I plead with you to turn to God and ask him to undo that coldness and hardness that you've built up towards him, to undo it as an act of mercy by his own power, power that you don't have. That's the first temptation, to become cold to the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his convicting work. Here's the second thing, the second temptation in this area as repeat offenders who do believe in Jesus and who have the Holy Spirit to become arrogant towards the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his process. To become arrogant towards the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his process. His process. That's the key kind of fulcrum word in this temptation. His process, not your process. Because don't we all have imaginary processes by which we hope to be sanctified? that God will just, with no desire of our own, with no sacrifice on our part, with no suffering, that God would just change us. That one morning you'd just get out of bed and suddenly you'd be different than you were when you went to sleep. That's the craziest thing. When I went to sleep, I was an angry, emotionally abusive husband who put loads on my wife and children they couldn't bear without lifting a finger to help them. But when I woke up in the morning, I was gentle and merciful. But the Spirit is saying, no, we're going to grind this out. We're going to grind this out. You're going to feel it. You're going to feel the burn of the sin, the heaviness of the sin. Why? Because God is not only trying to rid us of the sin, but he's trying to teach us, as he does, to hate it, to be reviled by it. That sin is an evil in this world that is intolerable to the heart of God, and is it an evil that is intolerable to us? God wants to change you, transform you, not just abracadabra you. So to become arrogant towards the Holy Spirit and intolerant of his process, the timing and the means that he uses to sanctify is the second temptation. But let me establish 
what I think the scriptures clearly say is the right attitude. That if we walk by the Spirit, listen, don't forget, don't forget the context of how we're describing these things and the experience that we hope to have. Repeat offenders who believe in Jesus, which is all of us, that if we walk by the Spirit and believe what the Scriptures say, walk by the Spirit and believe what the Scriptures say, we will find an attitude towards our sinfulness that is simultaneously hateful and grieved towards the sin, but also patient as we accept that the sanctifying work that's being done in us is not yet complete. You hate the sin and you're grieved by it, but you're trusting in the Holy Spirit to lead you through a sanctifying process that belongs to Him. You cannot control it. You can align yourself with it. You can ask for it. You can submit to it, but you cannot control it. And if you're not patient, if you're not understanding what Paul said in his opening remarks to the Philippian church, that God will be faithful to complete the good work he began in you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, if you think that that work's going to be done now, according to your process and your timing, or that you'll just abandon that process altogether, not be in a process because you can't bear the process. You can't bear the feeling of conviction if you forget that this is something that will be complete at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Then let me tell you what you're looking at. A lifetime of frustration and guilt. Not freedom. Not joy. Not that I know I'm not complete yet, but I know that in Christ I am complete. I have everything I need. I have been set apart and perfected by the blood of Jesus Christ so that I can come to the throne of grace in my time of need and be accepted by God. I believe that I am one of those mentioned by the author of Hebrews who is being perfected even though I've already been sanctified. I've already been set apart as holy. I'm loved. I'm accepted. God is for me. He's made up his mind. Having a strong desire for something to be complete, but also an accompanying patience about the timing is what the Bible calls steadfastness. Steadfastness. Please don't forget the context. Repeat offenders who love Jesus. You need steadfastness to be always trusting in the work of Christ for you and at the same time being grieved and hurt by your sin so that you're aligning yourself with the Spirit's work. Stay the course. Stay the course. The course is the gospel. What Christ has done for you, this is the course. This is the track we're running on. Stay the course. And in God's timing, you will see the work of His Spirit advancing you forward in Christ likeness. You will see it. 
So Abraham failed, he sinned, but he stayed the course because of his faith in God to keep his word. Think about this. If God says he's going to do something that depends entirely on his faithfulness and his power, then your faith in him is just that, faith in him. Faith in him, not in yourself. So it was because of Abraham, his faith, that he stayed the course and realized the promises of God. His faith in God. Was it because of Abraham and something inside of him? Something natural in him? Something that was unique to him? No. It was because of God. Yet here's the weird part. We can clearly say that God gifted Abraham with the faith to stay the course. It was something Abraham had, but it was a gift that was given to him. Like Paul says to the Corinthians, what do you have that you didn't receive? Why then do you act as if you didn't receive it, as if you earned it? Everything we have from God is a gift, and it is given to us. My faith is my faith, but it was granted to me by a merciful God. So let me encourage you this morning that whatever kind of sin, as we, as we sit honestly together and in our own hearts, we recognize that kind of repetitious, redundant sin that's in our lives that we have not yet overcome and we look to God, let me encourage you that whatever kind of sin and however much of it and however often it becomes a part of your life, you serve a God who is infinitely capable of seeing you through it and fulfilling his promise to rid you of it in his timing. He is infinitely capable. That's your God. There is no weakness in him. There's no slowness in him. He will do what he's promised to do. This is why Abraham trusted him. Because even when Abraham attempted to self-destruct here by derailing and trusting his own devices to advance his life, there was something Abraham believed. God was going to do what God said. So even in light of my own failures, God is going to do what God said. God has said that he's going to do things in your life. I'm not talking about those kind of secret things that no one could know, like who you're going to marry and what kind of job you're going to work and how many years are you going to live. But things like Jesus died for you taking all of your sin from you and crediting all of his righteousness to you to reconcile you with a holy God and by his spirit's presence inside of you to keep you in that reconciled state with a holy God for all of eternity. This has been said about you. God will do it. Will your sins be, over to over, be able to overcome God's determination to keep his word? Absolutely not. What a ridiculous notion that stupid little me could send my way out of the will of God. What a ridiculous thing. 
but we all fall prey to it because our flesh wants to convince us that we are still under law, not under grace. That is, it's by our own self-righteousness and not by Christ's that we are justified. Like Paul tells the Romans, sin shall not be your master, for you're no longer under law, but under grace. To be under law is God says, you be perfect, I accept you. To be under grace is, I know you're not perfect. I've credited my perfection to you out of my own will and my own love and my own steadfastness, so you're safe in it. Now we come to the next 16 verses of Genesis chapter 20. Verses which I hope will take what we've just established, that is God's faithfulness to keep his word when we stumble, and it will add another layer that will prove to be, I hope, a warm blanket over all of our hearts and bring comfort, even as we fully face and recognize our brokenness. Verses 3 through 18. I'm going to read them again to recap. But God came to Abimelech in a dream by night and said to him, quoting God now, Behold, you are a dead man because of the woman whom you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Is there anything you want to hear less when God speaks to you in a dream at night? Behold, you are a dead man. I just can't imagine anything more terrifying, can you? Now Abimelech had not approached her. The Bible is understating here. So he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Did he not himself say to me, she's my sister? And she herself said, he's my brother in the integrity of my heart and the innocence of my hands. I have done this. I have taken this woman to be my wife. Then verse six happens. Then God said to him in the dream, yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart. And it was I who kept you from sinning against me. Therefore, I did not let you touch her. It was I who kept you from sinning. I did not let you touch her. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return her, know that you shall surely die, you and all who are yours. So verse 8 naturally follows, so Abimelech rose early in the morning and called all his servants. That fool woke up at the break of dawn. He set the rooster for like 4.30 in the morning. I'm getting out of bed early. I'm going to talk to some folks about what just happened. He rose early in the morning and called all his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. Yes. Then Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, what have you done to us? And how have I sinned against you that you have brought on me and my kingdom a great sin? Now, at this point, you have to read forward and get the context that it says the Lord healed Abimelech. Apparently, there was more than just the barrenness of his wives and servants happening here. There must have been some kind of affliction bodily on them. So they knew God was serious. 
You have done to me things that ought not to be done. And Abimelech said to Abraham, what did you see that you did this thing? Abraham gives his weak explanation and his excuse for his sinfulness. Verse 14, then Abimelech took sheep and oxen and male servants and female servants and gave them to Abraham and returned Sarah, his wife, to him because he didn't want to die. And Abimelech said, behold, my land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you because he didn't want to die. To Sarah, he said, behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you that I did not touch you because the Lord didn't let me because I do not want to die. And before everyone you are vindicated. And Abraham prayed to God as a prophet. By the way, he's the first person in the scriptures called a prophet. Abraham prayed to God and God healed Abimelech and also healed his wife and female slaves so that they bore children in keeping with his word for the Lord had closed all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abram's wife. Now let me explain to you what's happening here that God is intervening to stop. If Sarah is taken by Abimelech to be his wife and he lays with her and she becomes pregnant or even if he lays with her and then this whole thing comes to light and she goes back with Abraham, Abraham lays with her and she becomes pregnant with Isaac, could it not be said of Sarah that she is actually bearing Abimelech's son? God is intervening here for the integrity and the fulfillment of his plan to create a people who are his people beginning with Isaac. He's intervening to protect his plan. And his plan is to exalt himself in the earth through these people. So God intervened sovereign over sin to stop someone from sinning so that the plan of salvation might continue. Now I want you to turn to Acts chapter 2. I know you weren't expecting that, but there you go. Acts chapter 2, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you get to Romans, you went too far. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 through 24, Peter now, after Jesus has been crucified, after he's been raised from the dead, after he has appeared to his disciples, in fact, appeared to hundreds of people, Peter now, on the day of Pentecost, after receiving the Holy Spirit and a sign was given to all the people in the city by the Holy Spirit, allowing the disciples to speak in all these languages, declaring the mighty works of God to them to get their attention so that they could hear the gospel, Peter is now declaring in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. There's something happening here in relation to our Genesis 20 passage. 
in Genesis 20, God to preserve and promote his plan of salvation in the world stopped Abimelech from sinning. I did not let you sin. I did not let you touch her. Now let her go. Now here we see a different side of God's sovereignty. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified. You murdered at the hands of lawless Roman Gentile men thinking that you were doing God's will, but rather you were murdering God himself. It is the greatest, most egregious sin in all of history that the Son of God would be counted with thieves hung on a Roman cross to suffocate in his own blood, filling up his lungs for the sake of man's sin. It's the most egregious sin in all of history. The darkest hour of humanity. But God did not stop it. In his sovereignty, he predestined it. He predestined it that Christ would be delivered up and crucified at the hands of lawless men so that we might gather in this place our faith in him, his spirit in us to know the truth and be set free by it. God is sovereign over sin. God is supremely, graciously, beautifully sovereign over sin. Your sin their sin, my sin. There is nothing that happens in this universe that happens apart from the sovereignty of God. There is not a star shining in the sky or a shoelace that comes untied apart from the lordship of God. We've said several times lately that the Bible is amazingly honest with us. So let's walk in that spirit of honesty. Let's be honest. If our hearts are turned towards God in faith right now, then the truth of his sovereignty over sin in Genesis 20 and Acts 2 to promote the plan of salvation, to allow for suffering for the sake of his name, or to stop it for the sake of his name. If we turn towards God in faith right now, then the truth of his sovereignty over sin brings comfort that he will complete a plan that will include sin and suffering, but will result in salvation, reconciliation, eternal life for sinners through belief in the gospel of Christ. Though we are completely undeserving of fellowship, in life with him, he will do it. But if our hearts are not towards him, turned towards him in faith, then the truth of God's sovereignty over sin can leave us with indignation. Absolute indignation. Not asking God, how can it be that you would give yourself up for me? But instead, we might be asking, how can it be that you would let me suffer in these ways if you have the power and authority to stop it? Indignation towards a sovereign God. I would say two things 
to those who are feeling bothered by this truth of God's sovereignty over sin this morning. The first thing, historically, people who question God's character end up regretting it because he always proves to be holy and righteous in all of his judgments. Always. So if you have questions for God, I would not direct them at his character, his holiness, his righteousness, or his justice, but instead direct them as a person who's confused about how these things make sense. The second thing, God values sincerity. Even when we turn out to be wrong, God values sincerity. If the truth of God's sovereignty over sin raises more questions than it answers for you, then ask God those questions. Ask him to lead you to the truth that it would set you free. And I have confidence in God that he will have mercy to those people who meet with him in humility people who are struggling, people who have doubts, but who know God is God. I have confidence in him that he'll meet with you in mercy. So, whether this truth this morning brings you comfort and creates delight in your heart towards the Lord, or if it bothers your soul, in any case, let's all come humbly and sincerely to the Lord in prayer and worship of the sovereign God who has made a way in Christ for us to come to him with our praise, our fears, our doubts, our deep wounds. Even though the world and Satan were seeking to derail his plan to save sinners, God turned their rebellion on them and used it to save them. He proves to be a gracious and a holy God. It's the highest height of grace that we could come to God with our questions and doubts and find help in our time of need. He's here. Listen, I don't mean this in some mystical way. I mean this in all reality. God is here and he is listening. He is sovereign over your sin and over your suffering to stop it, to allow it, even to predestine it for the sake of his name, for the sake of his people. Come to him and I think that you will find him in his mercy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to audio from Genesis Community Church. To find out more, visit us online at genesiscommunity.church.